You're listening to the Table Church Podcast. The Table is a community in Orville, California that aims to follow Jesus by doing what he did. Love God, love our neighbors, and serve those in need. Find us at thetablechurch.net, Instagram, or Facebook. And now for the message. We did a eight-week series on failure, and every one of those stories was... Uh... From, from men in the Bible. And I, and I wanted to highlight some women in Scripture. And so March felt like the appropriate month to do that since it's International Women's Month. And I've just been wanting to do this for a very long time. And so we're going to take four weeks here, uh, maybe more, to just take a look at these women's stories. Zelophehad, Hepher's son, had no sons. Only daughters. The names of Zelophehad's daughters were Mala, Noah, Hogla, Milka, and Terza. If there's not any babies named Hogla in this church <laughs> in the next decade, if the Lord miraculously grants me another daughter, it's going to be Hogla. Zelophehad, had, if it's a boy, had no sons, only daughters, and these are their names. We're going to take a look at these women's stories uh, throughout the month of March. If you have any questions or comments at any times, please feel free to text. In fact, as I said that, I'm going to pull that out so I can see if anything comes through. We're in the Old Testament, which just feels further away, and the names feel unfamiliar, and so uh, part of the difficulty is just keeping up with the story, but Please interrupt if you have questions. In fact, I have a couple places where I'm just going to straight up ask if there's any questions. More dialogical instead of me just lecturing the whole time or preaching. Or I want this to be a conversation through God's word together. But today we're talking about Mala, Noah, Hogla, Milka, and Terza, the daughters of Zelophehad. Here's the background. Let's spend some time getting into the background of this. We're in the book of Numbers. Numbers for many of us, and I'll be honest with you, I'll be real with you, is sometimes boring, including me, because it's a lot of listing of the numbers and names of the human beings known as the Israelites. And those can be really hard for us. But if you put yourself in their shoes, and God promised to make your nation as numerous as the stars in the skies and the sand on the seashore, a list of numbers... It's the fulfillment of God's promise. So we're in the book of Numbers, and there's, some, there's lots of lists of people, and in between there's these stories, and so sometimes these stories often get mixed, uh, missed. So if you know about Zelophehad's daughters, you are in the 1% of Bible knowers in the world, maybe ever. But you're going to know today, and uh, you're going to be learned scholars. Here's the background. The Israelites have left Egypt, 10 plagues, Moses, let my people go. All that happened. And they are on their way to the promised land, the land flowing with milk and honey. And there's lots of setbacks and there's lots of issues and there's lots of uh, frustrations and fighting and crying and complaining to the point where God calls his own people a stiff-necked people. They are stubborn. They wander the desert Oh, before that, 
They send some spies into the new land. There's people living there, and they want to know what kind of obstacles are ahead of them. So they send 12 spies in, and those 12 spies come back, and 10 of them says, we should abandon all hope. It would have been better for us to be in Egypt than have to take on these people in the land. There's giants in there. Joshua, son of Nun, and Caleb said, the Lord has been with us this entire time. Let's go right now. But those 10 went around and stirred up trouble within the camp. And all the Israelites were afraid, and they cried out to God and said, it would have been better for us to die in Egypt than to come this far in the wilderness. God is livid. God wants to be done with these people, and Moses intervenes and says, do not kill them, please. You gave them a promise. And so God said, okay, I'm going to let people enter the promised land, but no one 20 years or older will be able to enter. They must wander the desert until, for 40 years until those people die. And so the Israelites wander the desert for 40 years because of their complaining, because of their fear about the, the people who lived in the land. In the middle of that was this thing called Korah's Rebellion. Just I need to let you know because the, the daughters mention it briefly. Uh, Korah was a, a, a priest in the priestly class, the same as Moses. And essentially he says, we're all holy too. Why are you the only one that gets to meet with God? Moses, humble, falls on his face and says, I don't know why God chose me. But, I mean, let's go see. And Korah comes with such an angry heart that God opens the ground and swallows 250 of Korah's rebellious men. And then the people freak out, and God sends a plague, and it's like 11,000 people died as part of Korah's rebellion. And where we are in the story now is that faithless generation, the one who said, we shouldn't go in, the giants are too big, we wish we would have died in Egypt as slaves. God said, I'm not letting you in until all those people have died. Well, they've, they've pretty much all died. That's where we are in the story, in Numbers. And they're about ready to enter the land. And so in chapter 26, we're going to be reading from 27, but just to give you the more immediate context, chapter 26, God says, take a census of all the people because I want to know what kind of army we got when we get into that place. And so they take a census of all the people who are eligible for military service. Who's largely eligible for military service? Almost entirely men, right? They're counting men. In this culture, they called it the Bet Ab, the, the father's household. There were Bet M's, there were mother's households, but by and large, they didn't get counted. It was just the father's household and the fighting men. But right in the middle of this chapter, it says Zelophehad. Hepher's son had no sons, only daughters. And then it names the daughters. Mala, Noah, Hogla, Milka, and Terza. And that becomes important because at the end of this chapter, they're starting to divide up the land. And God says, we're going to divide up the land even before we get there. This is how we're going to do it. The land will be apportioned to these as an inheritance according to the number of the names on the list that you just made about military service. The biblical author is subversive. Because if we're dividing up the land based on the names of the military fighting men, the list you just made, well, there's five women named on that list now. <laughs> 
Zelophehad's son, daughters. In fact, there's seven women named on that list, but two of them are dead. They're, they're the they're ancestors. And so the only living women on that list are Zelophehad's daughters. And then God says, we're going to do this. We're going to portion this land in the promised land as fairly as possible. The larger your family, the larger the piece of the land. The larger the clan, the larger the piece of land. The smaller, the smaller. It's going to be connected. And then we're going to divide up the land into general regions. And just so no one thinks that we're trying to privilege any one of uh, these Israelite tribes, we're going we're gonna to do lots. We're going to cast lots to see who kind of gets the general regions. So no one says, well, you love, you love Zebulun, tribe, tribe of Zebulun better, so you gave them all the good stuff. We're going to do it by lot. There's a fairness in the way God is trying to apportion the land. Based on the list of names. Clear as mud. Any questions? That's the context. They're in the desert. They're getting ready to head to the promised land. And they're getting ready to divide up the land. There's been all kinds of stuff that has happened. And they're getting ready to head in. And all the faithless generation is dead. It's mostly those who are under 20 at that time. Now, 60 plus all of their family. Chapter 27, the good news for today says this. The daughters of Zelophehad, Hepher's sons, Gilead's grandsons, Machir's great-grandson, and Manasseh's great-great-grandson. They're giving you their numbers. I'm letting you know from which tribe they belong. The tribe of Manasseh. Belonging to the clan of Manasseh, who was son of Joseph. These daughters came forward. His daughters are named again. Mala, Noah, Hogla, Milka, and Tursa. They stood before Moses, Eleazar the priest, Aaron's son, the chiefs of all the tribes, and the entire community of Israel at the entrance of the meeting tent. So that's the setting. The entire tribe, the entire people of Israel are gathered at this, at this tent where God lives, and they're apportioning the land, drawing lots about who's going to get what, who's going to go where. They're all in front of their church, figuring out who gets what land. And these five sisters approach Moses in front of God and everybody and say, our father died in the desert. He wasn't part of Korah's rebellion. He was not a part of that Korah rebellion. Those, those people deserved to die. They were bad. No, he died for his own sin. We don't know what that means. Scholars say that means he was gathering sticks on Saturday. I don't think that's what it means. When I say scholars, I mean old rabbis. They're like, he broke the Sabbath laws. He died. I think what it means is he was a part of that generation that doubted that they could take on the giants. But ultimately what the daughters are saying is that our father's dead, and he wasn't a part of those people that were rebelling. He just died along with the rest of the faithless generation who wasn't allowed to enter the promised land. Why should our father's name be taken away from his clan because he didn't have a son? Are you really telling us that 
my family doesn't get a piece of land because my dad didn't have a son. We don't get to enter into the promised land with the rest of the Israelites. We don't get to have an inheritance, a legacy, a piece of the milk and honey that God promised us because my dad didn't have a son. Give us property among our father's brothers. Moses brought their case to the Lord in that tent. And the Lord said to Moses, Zelophehad's daughters are right in what they are saying. By all means, give them property as an inheritance among their father's brothers and hand over their father's inheritance to them. Speak to all of the Israelites and say, if a man dies and doesn't have a son, you must hand his inheritance over to his daughters. And if he doesn't have a daughter, you give it to his inheritance to his brothers. And if he doesn't have any brothers, you should give it his inheritance to his father's brothers. And if his father doesn't have any brothers, you should give his inheritance. This is why sometimes it's hard to read the book of Numbers. If his father's brothers don't have any brothers, you should give his inheritance to his nearest relative. You could have just said that. From his clan. He will take possession of it. This will be a regulation and a case law for the Israelites. As the Lord commanded Moses. Questions, comments, insights about the daughters of Zelophehad and their story. Great question. They didn't have spouses at this time. And there was a concern. Why, can you flesh out your story before I answer what I think you're saying, asking? Yeah, great question. We still have some issues here. Yeah. And then there was all kinds of concern a couple chapters later that um, people from different tribes would try to marry into a different tribe to take that tribe's land away. And the Israelites really wanted to keep each tribe to keep their lands in their tribe. And so there was all kinds of issues with spouses that comes up from this. Great question. You know how we do. Head, heart, hands. Something for us to know, feel, experience inside of us or do but today let's start with heart and I really want to focus in on on something about fairness and boldness both things that we feel inside of us so why we're starting with heart and what I would say as I'm digesting the story of Zelophehad's daughters we should expect fairness from the faithful. We should expect fairness from the faithful. You and I should be able to expect fairness among one another here. Life might not be fair. The world might not be fair. But we should be able to expect a little bit here, right? I feel like they're appealing to fairness here when they say, our father's memory gets blotted out forever because he didn't have a son. Memory is wildly important in the Jewish context. This is how you live on eternally, is through memory. And we don't get a piece of the promised land, and my father's name doesn't get attached to this community because he didn't have a son. That doesn't 
feel fair. They boldly approach all the people, Moses, the chiefs, the leaders, in front of God and everyone. And they don't ask. There's no question. Give us property. Bold in my mind. Bold. Going against all the cultural values that they have in their community. Everything the world had said about women or about people at the bottom of the social hierarchy. And they go, my dad doesn't get land because he didn't have a son. Give us property. I love it. I love it. It wasn't like, you think maybe we could have a little bit of that? Give it to us. And it's so bold because they're not like, it's just they don't even mince words. Yeah, we know that property goes to fathers and brothers. Give us land among those people. Boldness. Fairness. I think they have a legit claim. I think the author's trying to let us know they have a legitimate claim. Just again, remember, the Lord said take a number of names. That number of names includes literally their names. They're the only women alive on the list. They could have said, remember when the the Lord said, give land a portion to the names on that list? Our names are on the list. But they didn't. I think they, they could have had a semantical argument. That's how I love to argue. My wife hates it. She's like, why are you? I'm like, you said the exact words that you said. And she's like, well, I don't know what I meant. And I'm like, well, I can't live my life based on what you meant. You know what I mean? I love semantical arguments. I'd be like, my name was on the list. The Lord said give land to people on the list. They didn't. They appealed to fairness. Is it fair that my father's name is blotted out forever because he didn't have a son? They boldly expected fairness from the faithful, rightness from the righteous, justice from the justified, and I think we can do that too. I think we can do that too. And I think they see it when God's talking about how God's going to give land fairly By lots and by size, God's trying to have a distribution of fairness when it comes to land. And I think the the daughters are appealing to that, are appealing to that sense of fairness. I finally watched it, y'all. The Princess Bride. I got so much flack. And it was very good. Thank you all for that peer pressure. But as I was thinking about fairness, I was thinking about this quick scene right in the middle of the movie where um, Fred Savage is getting the story read to him by Columbo. And um, I don't know what his name is in the movie. Hold and, it, uh, hold it, Grandpa. Here it is. You read that wrong. She doesn't marry Humperdinck. She marries Wesley. And just serve it. After all that Wesley did for her, if she didn't marry him, it wouldn't be fair. Well, who says life is fair? Where is that written? Life isn't always fair. I'm telling you, you're messing up the story. Now get it right. Do you want me to go on with this? Yes. All right, then. No more interruptions. And one more thing. That's what Columbo always says, right? Isn't the killer's left-handed. What are you holding the pencil with? You know, he's like a... 
And the killer's always like, I am left-handed. I guess I did it. I love Columbo. Anyways, I bring that clip up because if I said to you, life's not fair, we would all go. That's a fact about reality. We all, that has been ingrained in us since the beginning. Some of the frustration that happens with young people is that they think life's fair and we're like, you got a lot to learn, right? But, but, and this is maybe my romantic heart is always breaking. Mala, Noah, Hogla, Milka, and Terza show us, sure, there are lots of places where life isn't fair. But it's supposed to be. I mean, we just came out of Egypt under oppressive slavery. Life's not fair sometimes. But it's supposed to be. The God of justice has created a world that is supposed to operate with injustice. And if we believe that God of justice is real and present within our community, then we should at least, if we can expect justice anywhere, it should be right here in God's presence at the tent of meeting among God's people based on God's promises. Yes, I want you to know that life's not fair. That is a truth. But we are a people of hope, and so we balance that truth with the other competing truth that God is good and that God's world is supposed to be good and God's world will be good someday. And at least in the middle of life's not fair and life will be fair, we can expect a little bit of fairness right here where God's presence is in the middle of God's promises and people. Amen? What does God want us to know? Here's what I'm chewing on in this story. God hears the prayers of despair. The Bible tells us a hundred different ways, and I've only got one verse for you, but what the Bible wants you to know is that God hears the prayers of the despair. God hears the prayers of the people who are excluded, who are written off, who are written out, who are at the bottom, over and over again. I mean, we believe, we have a theology that God hears all prayers. So when I say this, what I mean is that God is especially attentive to those who are struggling, who are suffering, who are at the bottom, who are in despair. David, King David, the one who wrote the Psalms, wrote the Psalm 140, and he says, I know that the Lord will take up the case of the poor and will do what is right for the needy. This is something that he knows about God. And I could honestly rattle off a hundred scripture for you that says something to this effect. That God is especially attentive to those who are on the bottom of the social class. God's protected people are widows and orphans, immigrants and the poor. By the time we get to the end of the New Testament, James, the brother of Jesus, says this is what true religion is. Taking care of the widows and the orphans and making sure that we stay holy. And so Moses, being a good leader, a godly leader, hears these people's petition, these, these women's petition, and he takes it to the Lord. Moses brought their case before the Lord, and the Lord said, the daughters are right. So I think this should be a surprise for everybody. I don't think anybody was thinking this. Women didn't get property in this culture. 
and God with God's own mouth. They're right. Give them some land. And not only did God hear their petition and act favorably, not only did God hear their petition and change the situation, God made a new law for all women based on their prayer without reading the whole thing over again. Anybody who doesn't have sons, the land can go to the daughters. This will be a regulation and a case law for all the Israelites forever as the Lord commanded Moses. Not only did God change the situation, God changed the whole system. Gave new Torah, as they would say in Judaism. Gave a new teaching, gave a new law about women and their right to have property. This is Patsy Mink. Uh, I heard this story recently, and I thought it connected well with what we're talking about. Patsy Mink grew up in Hawaii before Hawaii became a state, right before World War II. Uh, brilliant. Valedictorian of Maui High School. I was like, I just, every time I read Maui High School, I was like, that sounds so amazing. I don't want to go back to high school, but I might make an exception for Maui High School. Valedictorian of Maui High School, president of, of her class, president of the debate team. She ends up going to college a little bit in Hawaii, and then she ends up going to the University of Nebraska and becomes the president of her class again. Uh, she graduates with a degree in biology and zoology. She ends up back in Hawaii, and there she applies to uh, 12 medical schools. She wants to be a doctor, and she doesn't get accepted to any of them. And the reason was they were given was that we have a lot of soldiers that are returning from World War II, and we don't have room for women in these programs. And so then she was encouraged to take, uh, become a lawyer, and so she became a lawyer. And then she graduated with her law degree, graduated top of her class, and she came back to Hawaii to take the bar exam in the state in which she lived, but she had gotten married, and there was a law in Hawaii that you, if you got married and your husband wasn't a citizen of Hawaii, the state of Hawaii now, you were not a citizen anymore. You were not a state resident. By law, you automatically became a resident of the state from which your, which your husband was. So she couldn't take the bar exam in Hawaii. So then she had to fight this law. She was like, my husband doesn't even live there anymore. I've never even been to that state. It was something like Iowa. She was like, how am I a resident of a state I've never been to? Why can't I take the bar exam in the state that I grew up in? Uh, finally was able to take the bar exam, passed it, but then she, I mean, flying colors, but then couldn't find work as a woman, as a new mom. So she created her own practice and started teaching law. I'm giving you too much of the story. She ultimately becomes a U.S. representative and when Hawaii becomes a state. She becomes the first woman of color to become a U.S. representative in the United States. And one of her uh, most important pieces of legislation that we maybe all heard about, and by the way, I hope it's not coming across political, her piece of legislation was bipartisanly supported. 88 people in the Senate voted for it. Uh, Across the aisle, she came up with Title IX, which I know that there are ways in which this thing is getting worked out in society that, you know, can sometimes cause conflict. 
But essentially what Title IX tried to do was that it, prohibit, it prohibited any education from discriminating against anyone based on sex. What it really says is if you take money from the government to do education, you can't discriminate against people based on sex because of this law. It changed the game. This piece of legislation became so important. She also worked on early childhood leg legislation. She created things like Head Start. But it changed the game so that women could not be discriminated against based on them being a woman. And it was such an important piece of legislation that they named the law after her. It's the Patsy Mink legislation uh, now. This is her contribution to our country. And I just thought of all that because our sisters, Zelophehad's daughters, not, not only has God heard their prayer and changed their situation, but God, moving forward, changed the whole system for everyone moving on from here. That God heard the prayers and petitions of these daughters and, and acted on their behalf and on behalf of women forever into Judaism. Because of this story, there's a law, and because of that law, women were able to hold property in this culture, unlike many of the cultures surrounding them. There's a way in which God hears the prayers of despair and is attentive in ways unlike uh, many of the ways that we see God act. God is listening, and God acted in this case and changed the whole system. What does God want us to do with this story? I don't know. We can go home. No, we know what the sisters did. They were bold. They had an expectation of fairness. They brought their case forward. But I'm really interested in what God and what Moses and what the people do in this story. Because I think that gives us some clues and some insight into maybe what we can do in the midst of this story. And for me, what I'm especially uh, taken by is the way that people listened. And they took serious their concern. And they made space for them. Whether they liked it or not. The whole Israelite community listened and heard these daughters' story. And sometimes I don't think, whether it has to do with women or not, I just think as a society, we're bad at hearing people's stories. We could learn a lesson about what it means to listen to stories. And Moses took their concerns seriously by taking it to the Lord. He could have dismissed. He could have pushed away. Could have, he wrote the book of Numbers. He could have not included it, right? <laughs> Uh, but he took it serious by taking it to the Lord. And the Lord then changed the situation and the system, their particular case and the case for all people moving forward. And everyone made space for these daughters of Zelophehad, figuratively and literally, to hear their story, and now they get a piece of land. That, to me, feels emulatable. That feels to me like an example. I know I struggle with hearing stories. Aaron and I one time went on a walk 
on this beach. We were at a church trip, and it was by the ocean, and we got to go to the beach. You know, what normal people do. I'm not bragging. It's the beach. I'm just kidding. And she says she saw an orca jump, and I was like, no, you didn't. That 100% didn't happen. And she was like, well, it was kind of a silhouette. The sun's over there. But I saw an orca, and I was like, not a chance. Let me tell you, I know nothing about orcas, but I'm pretty sure they don't, they don't come down this far. Santa Cruz? Orcas? No. And she was like, she's doubting herself. And I'm like, she's like, I think I did. And I was like, no, you did. Okay, though, go for it. And we walk back up the hill. And the rangers are like, do you guys see any orcas? I heard there's some around here. And I was like, <laughs> so sorry. <laughs> Dolphins, maybe. Orcas, no. It's too warm. I don't know anything about orcas. Way too warm. This far south, orcas, not a chance. The rangers are like, people are seeing orcas all day. Do you guys see them? I'm like, I mean, I wanted to be this big. She was very gracious with me. I'm not good sometimes at listening to stories. I think I know. Uh, I, I, I think I got things figured out. Especially when we're talking about stories where there's a problem to be fixed. Man, I love to fix a good problem. I'm hearing you, but I got the solution already. Why are we talking about it? Let's go. Sometimes I get so singularly focused on fixing a problem that I'm not listening to a human being have a human experience. That is just not even part of what I'm doing. Let's fix the problem, and then we can move on. But that's not what's going on. There's an encouragement from this story to listen, to listen. And I'm not a great listener. I saw a TED Talk from Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie. She's from Africa. She's an author. And she talks about the danger of a single story. And there's a way in which we can get so singularly focused on a story that we miss out on all kinds of really great stuff. She brings up a couple examples. Uh, one is like, she's from Africa. And so she said, when I came to college here, everyone was like, tell us about Africa. We want to hear your tribal music. And she was like, what? She's like, show us your tribal music. And she's like... I pulled out a CD of Mariah Carey. I was like, this is, the, this is the music I listen to. She says, because they had a single story about Africa that had to do with war and disease and poverty. And I grew up, my mom was a professor. It's a different story. And she said, she did the same thing. She said, we had a kid that come work for us. And what I knew about this kid was that he was poor. And I had a single story about what being poor meant. And then one time I had to go drop him off at his house and I saw how his community loved him. And I saw the baskets they were making. And making baskets wasn't in my story about what poor people did. Poor people didn't contribute, she said. And this family was loved and honored and revered in their community. And they were highly productive. And she had a single story of poverty and it changed the way she saw this human being until she got a more complete story. She ends up saying in this, the consequence of a single story is that it robs people of dignity and it makes our recognition of our equal humanity difficult. It emphasizes how we are different rather than how we are similar. And she goes on to say, a single story creates stereotypes. And the problem with stereotypes is not that they are untrue, but that they are in incomplete. They make one story become the only story. 
The reason I love the story of Zelophehad's daughters is because I think for a long time, many people have a single story about women. In this culture, it was certainly true. I think, I think Satan helped start a single story about women all the way back in the garden. And we have been happy to repeat that story since the beginning. And stories like Zelophehad's daughters give us a more full, more complete picture of what God is doing in the midst of women and of the community of faith and how God views what's happening in the midst of this. Satan has been happy for our culture to silence women for so long, and that's over half of the population. We've missed out on the story of over half of humanity because we've had a single story about women for so long. But Zelophehad's daughters, Mala, Hogla, Milka, Terza, Noah, and they have shared their story in such a way that it brings out another aspect of what God's doing in the midst of God's own people. Just to wrap up with some stats here. In our own culture, in our own relatively Christian culture, it wasn't until 1840 in New York that some women were able to own property. They could own it, but they could not control it. Their husbands controlled it, and it was only married women. It was in the 1800s, the end of the 1800s, that women were even considered to have equal custody of their own children, let alone their own property. And a single woman couldn't functionally buy property in our country until... 1974, because that was when the Equal Credit Act came out and women could get credit cards in a, in a line of credit to buy. You need credit to buy a house. I mean, if you were given some land, good for you. You probably could have had it by then. But if you wanted to buy a house with a loan, a single woman couldn't do that before 1974 in our own culture. We've had a single story about women for a very long time, and it wasn't that long ago that that story bared out even in our own culture. But buried deep in this often overlooked book of numbers is a deeper story about five named sisters. Mala, Noah, Hogla, Milka, Terza boldly approached God and all of Israel to tell their story. Moses took it to the Lord, and the Lord changed their situation and the system, and the people made space for them after listening. May we be like them. Questions, comments, send them now. I don't have any. Did you really? I'm looking. I don't have, I'll look over here though. I got more questions. This is a story where boldness is met with receptive leadership and fairness is the outcome. What if leadership, particularly religious leadership's response to boldly seeking fairness is not reception, but opposition? Great question. Thanks for outing yourself. It was from them. And <laughs> uh, incredible question, one that I don't have all the answer to. I don't even know if I have a good answer for. But it hopefully it goes back to my first point where I said we should have a, the ability to have some expectation of fairness in the community of faith. And I would, uh, I would 
ask this person, you know, th- th- if they can't have that expectation in their own community of faith, then they should be doing some soul searching about, you know, why they're there and what's going on in that community. I would hope that God's people, where Jesus says the greatest of all is the servant of all, I would hope that that leadership would, would represent servanthood more than CEO bossness and that there could be an expectation. But I realize that not everybody organizes their churches and their organizations that way. But if you have an expectation for fairness and it's not being reciprocated, especially from God's leaders, uh, that would be a conversation I'd be having with them um, and with yourself. Was that okay? Did I say things what I... Uh, in this story, the uh, argument is based on what's fair to their father's memory and not what's fair to them. And do you think the decision from God was predicated on the fairness for their father's memory or what was fair for the daughters? Great question. Um, I will start by saying there's no way of knowing. The scripture doesn't tell us. And so it, it, in its silence, we can't have a definitive answer. My assumption is, uh, so my guess, is that the, the women are using the tools that they have in the culture that they have. They're using this power that they have in, in, the, in the context that they have. And so I think it's easier for them to say, our dad doesn't get a piece of land because he didn't have a son, than to say, you owe us land. Our names are on the list. We're people too. Uh, I think that would be a harder argument to make in this context, in a lot of contexts in the world. And so... But I'm guessing. You don't have to agree with that. That's not in the text. Um, great. I've kept you late. If you send any more questions, I will try to respond uh, via text. We should be able to expect fairness from the faithful is my first point. The second point that I'm chewing on as I'm chewing on the story is that God hears the prayers of, the, of despair. This is true about God throughout history and proven multiple times through multiple different scripture. And lastly, what I see the people doing that I would love for us to emulate doesn't have to do with just women. It has to do with all people, especially those that we have a tendency to write off or, or exclude, is this idea that we should listen and make space. That as people of faith, we are quick to listen and to make space for people even whom our society discounts. And with that, would you pray with me? Father, thank you. Thank you for the story buried deep within the book of Numbers. Would you help us to chew on it? Anything that's from me, Lord, James, that's not from you, would it go in one hour and out the other and we forget all about it? But anything that's from you in the story, anything that you want us to chew on, any truth that you want us to meditate on, would you help that to stick deeply within us? We're taking ancient stories and applying them to our current context. But ultimately, we just want to be faithful to you, to your goodness, your glory. Help us to do that. And with this time of communion, be a time of strengthening and empowering us to be close to you and to love one another well. Table Church, would you pray with me now the Lord's Prayer, finishing my prayer, saying... Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, 
your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sin as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.